Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast where we talk about strategies and solutions for building happier lives. This week, we'll talk about why you should make a concrete offer, and we'll talk to Kate Bowler, author of the memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved, and host of the podcast, Everything Happens. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who has been known to call me a happiness bully. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A., and Gretchen, I mean that only in the most loving way. <laughs> of it's course. I'm good. Of course. Now, Elizabeth, we are so excited. We are going on tour this fall. We are taking Happier Hour, an evening with Gretchen and Elizabeth, out into the world again. Yes, we say happier hour, but it's really more like 90 minutes. Yes. We've got tickets now on sale for Kansas City, our hometown, Chicago, Providence, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Charlotte, and Brooklyn. You can find details and ticket links at GretchenRubin.com slash events. If you want to get notified when we're coming to your city and when tickets are on sale and all that kind of uh, stuff, uh, sign up for my newsletter, which you can do at GretchenRubin.com slash hashtag newsletter. And I'll make sure that we let you know uh, when we're coming to your zone. And also, if you have questions, ask the venue because they know the answer I do not know. And so the venues are your source if you have any questions. So please come, bring your friends. We had so much fun meeting our listeners when we were out on tour earlier this year. Uh, we can't wait to see more of you. Absolutely. Now, Elizabeth, this week, our Try This At Home tip is an idea that comes from a listener. Yeah, Gretch, this comes from Karen, an obliger from Perth, Western Australia. It's very specific. She says, make a concrete offer. When someone is entertaining, it's lovely when guests offer to bring something. But the question, what can I bring, gives even more responsibility to the already busy host. It becomes yet another job for them to decide what would be appropriate to ask their guests to bring. After experiencing this as a host, I now like to ask something concrete when I'm going to somebody else's house. For example, can I bring a potato salad or a fruit platter and offer two very specific options that the host can choose from? This tip could also apply when you want to help somebody such as a friend who has a new baby or someone going through a hard time. Instead of asking, can I do anything or let me know if I can help, making a concrete offer might look something like, I'm cooking and would love to bring you a meal. Would your family prefer lasagna or chili? I think this is a great idea because we all know that feeling of wanting to help and wanting to be helpful. And this is just a good reminder that if you really put ideas in place and show the kind of thing that you have in mind, that makes it a lot easier for someone to say, actually, yes, I would like help. That sounds good. And, and sort of pick a choice rather than coming up with something out of nowhere. Yeah, and Gretchen, I have to say I failed to do this just the other day. Oh, what happened? Um, well, someone in Jack's class was sick and she had to go to the hospital. She had a high fever. And I emailed the mom who lives very close to us. And I said, you're so close. We're here all weekend. We don't have any plans. Let me know if I can help. But now I'm thinking what I should have done is said, like, can I bring bagels Saturday morning? Yeah. Or, yeah. oh, would you like me to come by and feed your cat? You right. know, I should have offered something 
because it's just that standard thing of when you just say, what can I do? I was just loading more on her shoulders when she was already, you know, concerned about her daughter and involved in that. Right. And because and you were thinking, oh, we live close. So that would be something that we could do. We could go get their newspaper. I don't know if people still get newspapers, but, you know, like we could go pick up your newspaper or, you know, whatever it might be, because you sort of have a special role to play since you were like live so close together. I remember, I I don't know where I heard this example, whether I read it in a book or like maybe a listener suggested it in an email, but her thing was like, she would call and say, I'm in Target right now. What do you mm. need? Or I'm in the grocery store right now. What can I pick up for you? And she said that like that kind of helped people be like, oh my gosh, you know what? I need diapers for my other kid. Or, oh, you know what? I realized we just ran out of milk. If you could pick up milk. Because the idea that you're not making a special trip, but you're just standing there right now, she thought made yes. it easier for people to say, actually, there is something you could do for me. Yes. And I think what's also nice about that is it's like showing I really want to help. Because sometimes gestures of offering help are sort of empty gestures. It's like, let me know if I can do anything. But in reality, you don't want to help. You're just saying that. Or you can't, you Um, don't know what to do. So you leave it on the other person. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yes. And so I think the more specific it is, the more the receiver of the help is going to feel like, oh, this person really wants to help. I'm not burdening them. This is something they want to do. Yeah. Well, you know, when there are situations that are really tough, there is a great book by Emily McDowell, which we talked about before, called There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life Mm. is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. And one of the things she pointed out in that book, which I have to say I had not thought of and was a really good point, which is sometimes a desire to be helped can become burdensome on its own. Mm. And I think if I remember correctly, she gave an example of someone who's like, oh, Elizabeth, I know you're in the hospital. I really want to get you slippers. So what's your size? Would you rather have cotton or wool? (laughs) There's like, do you want like a bright color, like purple, or do you want something more muted? And it's like, okay, Mm. now you have a homework assignment. Like, and Mm. so her point was just, Like, don't make it a burden. You want to help, but you don't want your help to become unhelpful. And I had just never thought about that. And I can easily see myself sort of drifting into that without realizing it. Yeah. And one thing to remember is even if you don't cook, like I don't cook, so I'm not the person that's going to bring a lasagna. There are other things you can do. For instance, Gretchen, one time when I was insanely busy You offered, which was still unbelievable (laughs) to me that you did this, you offered to buy Christmas presents on my behalf. So we all in our nuclear family, we do a stocking exchange. Everybody draws a name. I don't know who I had that year. Let's say it was mom. And you said, I'll get mom's presents for you. I'll take that off your plate. And oh my God, it was such a huge relief because even though I normally like doing the stocking, I was just so overwhelmed. But you could do that on a much smaller scale and just say, hey, I know there's, you know, a birthday party this weekend. Can I pick up the gift for Joe for you? Yeah. Well, I have to say when I thought of that gift, I was like, this is the best gift of all time. Because I knew that you were like, it was probably just blowing your mind that you had to like run out and, you know, (laughs) do the, because it is, it's like a lot of little errands, which are fun if you're like in the holiday spirit. But I thought, okay, this is not going to boost Elizabeth's holiday spirit. So I did pat myself on the back for that many many times. As you should. 
It's funny how sometimes like thinking about what it is, a friend of mine emailed me before I was having a party and you and I both talk about like we don't entertain all that much and can get kind of uh, wigged out about it. And so a friend was like, do you want me to come over and help? And I was like, I don't need your help, but will you come right on time? So you're like the first person here or like mm. the second person here, because it will be comforting to me that you're here. So just come right on mm-hmm. time. Don't be like, you know, sometimes you usually wait like 15 or 20 minutes to sort of like, that's kind of the protocol or whatever. I was like, don't do that. Come on the dot. And she did. It was just her being there made the party feel fun instead of me having that uncomfortable feeling of like, Ugh, I'm just waiting for that first buzzer, you know, and that was really helpful. I would say the opposite side of this is also feel free to tell someone something concrete to yes. do. You know, yes. like once I was like, can you bring ice? We were out of ice. And I just said to someone, can you stop and get ice? And right. they did. And it was fine. You know, so also on the other side of it, if you know you need something, ask, don't make people guess what you need. So it sort of goes both ways. Yeah, I think general offers to help are comforting. But when you see what it would actually look like, it's a lot easier to take it or offer it. Yes. And so, um, but it does take some effort. And so that's why making a concrete offer is a generous thing to do. So that's a great idea from our listeners. Let us know if you do try this at home and how making a concrete offer has worked for you. Maybe do you have examples of when you either received or made a concrete offer? Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode. This is at happiercast.com slash 239 for everything related to this episode. Coming up, we've got a happiness hack to boost office spirit. But first, this break. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. Okay, Gretchen, it is time for this week's happiness hack. And this is a fun one, an idea you got from attending the Kansas Women's Attorney Association. (laughs) Yes. So this was the 30th annual conference of this lawyers association. And they had this great thing where each person was wearing a sash, like just kind of like a homemade, very simple sash. And they had badges in the form of buttons, you know, just like spirit buttons that you get. And so sort of like Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, where you have your sash and you have your merit badge. And they used it as a way to break the ice. And so like some Mm. people had a badge that showed they were first time attendee or that this was their 10th time they'd been there. Or they also had symbols for like, I argued in court or um, I achieved an important personal goal. And so it was a way to be an icebreaker because you could walk up to somebody and be like, oh, interesting. What was the important personal goal? Or, you know, oh, you've been here 10 times. This is my first time or whatever. 
And so I was talking to them about it because I was like, this seems super fun. It was very playful and whimsical. You know, we love whimsy, Elizabeth. And we're always looking for ways other than being an evil donut bringer um, to have office morale. And they told me you can buy a button maker for like a hundred bucks. And I looked online. Yeah, you can get them. And they said, once you get the hang of it, it takes a couple tries to get the hang of it. It's very simple. I mean, they had hundreds of these badges. Like people had many, many badges and there were many, many attendees. And they were just doing this on their own. So I think this is like the kind of thing you watch reruns of The Office and just stamp these things out. They Uh were very imaginative what the categories were. Each person got a brown paper sack where they could put their badges and like a guide to what all the iconography meant. It was just, I was enchanted. clever and creative. Yes. I was so excited about it that they gave me when I left. They were like, hey, we have one for you. Um, Oh, that's so sweet. So I'll post a picture of like what the sash looks like and the badges. And again, this was not elaborate or fancy. This was fun. And it just, it gave everybody something to talk about and something to do. And so I can imagine a very small office sort of doing this, coming up with some concept And again, having this be sort of an ongoing fun thing that people do, it's not that expensive and it's a good way to bring people together and have fun as a team. So I thought this was a great, great idea. Yes, absolutely. Next show I'm on, sashes for everyone. (laughs) Yes. We all want a merit badge, right? It's the other gold star, the merit badge. Yes. And now it's time for an interview with Kate Bowler. We are such fans of Kate Bowler. About four years ago, Kate Bowler was living an ordinary life. She was 35 years old. She was a professor at Duke Divinity School. She was married with a new baby when she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. This experience forced her to reckon with her mortality. In a truly extraordinary way, she has grappled with this experience. She has a terrific podcast, which we highly recommend, called Everything Happens. And she has a New York Times bestselling memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Welcome, Kate! Aw, thanks for having me. So, Kate, alas, we're not face-to-face. You are in North Carolina. But I have to say, because I listen to your podcast all the time, it feels totally ordinary that you would be this invisible presence talking in my ear. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I listen to you guys all the time. So this is an extra special treat. Excellent. Oh, good. Now, here, Kate, not to start you off at a difficult place, but you are, you know, you write and talk a lot about the very difficult situation that you find yourself in. So do you want to sort of set up for listeners kind of how that's going for you right now? Sure. Yeah. Well, I was just trying to do the academic super plan where I just wanted (laughs) to be a professor and sit in my Mm -hmm. office with uh, many bookshelves and uh, all of my books. And uh, at 35, with no family history of cancer, I was suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer. And that really took apart the way I thought about my life and how I should spend my time. And so I've spent a couple years in active treatment and now Thankfully, I have graduated to six-month scans, which means people look at me with a very concerned expression, and then they send me off again. So Ah. I'm doing really well, (laughs) considering. But it's just given me a very different approach to how I think about um, suffering and whether we get what we deserve and, um, Mm. yeah, what we should do. 
Well, and you started writing about this almost immediately um, when yeah. you were really just in the throes of your first treatment. So how has it been going through this very personal health issue in a public context? Was your family comfortable with it? Like your husband, Tobin, yeah. obviously is featured. How has that been? Well, it's weird because I know it is public, but it, like the writing process is so private. Like, mm. I'm so performatively cheerful. Like, if you ask me how I am, I'm always going to be great. Yeah, well, that comes through in your podcast. Like, you (laughs) laugh a lot. And yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just, like, always trying to get it together. And I think writing really took me to a very different place where I felt like I finally found a way to be honest and get right down to it, which was a much deeper sense of outrage than I expected, that I was a lot sadder and lonelier than I thought I would be with my illness and just how frustrating it felt to suddenly feel tragic. Like you're at a party and you want to be the person, like I'm always thinking like, just please don't ask me what I write about or what's going on in my life. (laughs) I'm going to ruin everything for everyone. Um, And so, yeah. And so saying that stuff out loud has been maybe one of the more liberating parts. And it's been a weird but lovely thing for our marriage too, is just to be able to say in front of other people who have similar situations, this is the world I now live in as a sometimes patient. And I meet other people in Tobin, my husband's situation and realize like, wow, patients and caregivers actually live in totally different planets. And it's worth mm. like, learning how we learn to love each other with very different roles. For some people, was it hard to go behind this kind of screen of cheerfulness and actually hear, I mean, it's one yeah. thing you're in the hospital room and they see you acting a certain way, but then later on, they re- yeah. like in your memory, it's very powerful what you're going through. Or you say something to the doctor, but then you report what was actually in your mind. And I can imagine yeah. that for some people that might have been to sort of have that screen ripped away might have yeah. been difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt sometimes like I'd been lying to people the whole time. Like, and I think maybe Mm. we just lie to the people we love the most and for all kinds of reasons, like we don't want it to be more painful for them. We're all trying to figure out how to get through. And also I was pretty sure I was going to die for the first couple of years. And so I just always wanted to leave things on a good note. And so it was actually quite hard to be honest. (laughs) It was miserable. That part was completely (laughs) miserable. So that's been a bit of a change, like trying to practice being honest with the stuff that people can hear. And you just kind of realize early on, like some people just can't hear things. And so it's actually not a good idea to say like, oh, today is terrible. But for most people, if you give it to them in a way they can kind of hook into, especially if you can give them something to do, yeah. uh, then they're way more likely to be able to stand with and near you when you're kind of going through your thing. Well, it's funny because just in the first segment of this podcast, a listener suggested the idea of making a concrete offer, like mm-hmm. offer somebody something concrete totally. that they can do. Yeah, I love that. It yeah. drives me bananas when like the nicest people say like, well, let me know if I can help. And you're like, I can yeah. think of one possible thing right now because my brain is just on survival mode. So I love it when people are like, hey, can I bring you dinner? How about Tuesday? Right. I love Tuesday. Tuesday is now my favorite day. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> Well, it's picking up on this idea of like, what can people hear? One of the things you write about, and it's sort of the title of the book, people want to offer these platitudes, like everything happens for a reason, or well, at least you have good doctors, but, um, you know, they want you to look on the bright side or whatever. And this has been very frustrating for you. Yeah. 
how do we escape that desire to kind of, let's look on the bright side here. Let's see the, the learning. Totally. Totally. Yes, like, the learning moment. It's like, forget that. Yeah. 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 And I think we just have so few cultural scripts for how to deal with other yes. people's pain. And so the ones that are available to us are the ones that are usually accidentally really cruel. Like, um, the sort of like a secret detective mode where they always want to figure out like, but did my grandpa have colon cancer? Oh, like, did mm-hmm. I eat something? And like, that's just the race to figure out like, yeah, but why did it happen to you so that I'm safe? And yes. that is kind of a terrible feeling to know that you're actually just being explained when you thought someone was trying to sympathize. Uh, so that's one mode people go into. The other is like, trying to frame it for you so it's not as painful for you. So they're, that's the like, but at least, right. and they really want you to know you're getting great medical care and that things will probably be fine because they have just learned about it and will now explain it to you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's tricky. Um, so it's just hard because all of them are completely understandable impulses yeah. based on this really deep desire to relate, like to yes. understand what's happening, to mm-hmm. connect, and then also like offer the third most common reaction I get, which is well, when my aunt, and then they go mm -hmm. right into like wanting to explain the last person they knew that probably died of something similar. (laughs) You're like, oh, please, please stop. Man, Uh so many aunts. Well, I love, Kate, and I love in the book that you sort of have two appendix where you talk about what not to say and what to say. What are a couple of the things that people can say? Because I think that's what we're all searching for. Yeah, well... I think that suggestion of a concrete ask is such a good one. Like rushing in with something to help, I would just get so weepy when people would send me like a playlist, like something really simple, a stupid plant. Like it doesn't have to be anything that helps them with their particular illness because usually there's nothing to do. Mm. So Mm. a very silly or thoughtful or whimsical present is always nice. Mm. I love it when people just find something to compliment because so often you feel really eclipsed by something you didn't choose. And so when they can find something about you that doesn't feel like a eulogy, like, oh man, you're so, you're so kind. Or I love the way you, and just some specific compliment that really went a lot to helping me figure out who can I still be even when I, Mm. I wasn't sure who I was becoming. And um, especially since for so many people, it seems like also your physical presentation in the world changes. And so that also must be very unsettling because every part of your identity is not what it was. Yeah. And you're not sure who you are. Like you're just in this weird middle place where you're afraid that you're never, ever going to be out of it, but you hope you will. And so finding that sort of sweet spot between wanting to explain it away, but also knowing that everybody lives and breathes some kind of hope and that a lot of it is just the willingness to stand near you and say something super simple like, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Like, that must be so tough. And then know that there's really nothing you can say. And and someone like me actually doesn't expect anyone to fix anything. So, like, you're off Mm -hmm. the hook. Like, you can just be near me. 
hopefully love me in some kind of way and then be minorly helpful. I mean, that's just an A-plus friend right Minorly there. helpful. I like mm-hmm. that. Well, Kate, I was very struck with something in your memoir because you were talking about how, because you work at Duke Divinity School, you write, mm-hmm. all my friends are pastors. My colleagues <laughs> teach pastors. My friends are pastors and my students are going to be pastors. There is a flood of pastors, not only in my room, but in the nearby waiting room and in the Divinity School's own chapel where the community has decided to come together and pray me through my surgery. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that in a one way, this would be just a magnificent situation. Then I couldn't help but think, like, are there complications to that? Like, does that get tricky? You know, (laughs) I I don't want to bust you. Don't bust anyone. But, you know, it just seemed like, wow, that, that could be a lot going on. It was, I'm just laughing because when you read that, it reminded me of all the times I'd be like in the middle of having my bandages changed and like mm-hmm. a student would be on chaplaincy duty at the hospital and be like, oh, hello, oh I just my gosh. To. Like, ah. <laughs> so, wow. It was a lot of it was a lot of layers of things. I just sort of <laughs> give up on dignity pretty quickly. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think the best part of it was. You knew that people had a little bit of training around stuff they could do that could just kind of like uphold you. So uh, like for me, knowing I'm being prayed for or just like a hand on my head or they, I mean, the church has all these beautiful rites of like, you know, anointing your forehead with oil or having a friend who comes at that 4 a.m. moment right before surgery and just like prays for you and the doctors. There's nothing they can do except stand there and like wish you well in every cell of your being. And that was, I mean, unbelievably touching. Did you ever feel like people were, like they needed to feel that you responded in a certain way, like that their words had landed or that you kind of were appropriate in your response? Like, was there any kind of, like you were talking about performative, was there any kind of pressure in that way? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think I felt a lot of pressure to be everything in the right way. So Mm -hmm. to be a mom in the right way. So to always be invincible, Mm. to be a partner in the right way where you're just trying to make it easy for everyone else who loves you. And, and also as someone uh, who's a person of faith, I did sort of feel like I was supposed to perform like the best kind of trust in God. Mm -hmm. And that meant that I was always Mm. positive. God was working it out for me. And the truth is I have no idea what that language means. I really don't like, I know what it means to feel loved by God, but I have no sense that I've entered into a contractual obligation in which God owes me certain things, like including years of my life. And so it did make me feel a little crazy when I felt like other people's theologies were always being, I was a test case in somebody else's theological problem. Wow. It seems like, Kate, in your podcast, you, I mean, you're still sort of in an ongoing way, obviously, grappling with this entire situation. One thing you yeah. talked about in an episode with Alan Alda, which was great, which is how your mind works along two separate tracks mm-hmm. for thinking about time and making plans. What is that like? It's like holding these two things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like one is always planning for the best and I'm making, you know, I put money in my retirement account and I'm expecting to be the unbelievably emotional parent who drops my kid off at college, that kind of thing. And then the other is like, but what if? And then I am making much more short-term plans in which every time something, (laughs) like I'm in professor world and the one person started describing the other day, their like fourth trip to the archive and it was like two hours in and I was like, wait a minute. 
I don't know if I have time for things. Oh, like oh <laughs> interesting. I would, I would never have thought about that before. But I'm like, oh, I have a very low tolerance for this kind of boring. Double math going on, and I think, uh, I think that's why I relate so much to the work that you both are doing, though, because there's a a real desire to maximize joy in a mm. tight time frame and to want to know that everything counts. And so that's mm. certainly an experience I have a lot in which I'm like, wait, like, is this going to pay off in a way that is yes. most deeply meaningful? Right. Like thinking about what is the thing that's going to add value? What is the thing with just the yeah. fantasy self or yeah, other people's totally. sort of empty, you know, requirements that I yeah. can just, yeah. maybe I can just figure out a way to get out of this conversation because I really don't have to sit here and tell the, yeah. the exciting culmination of then they handed me the file. You know? yeah. Oh yeah, they definitely got the file. After about hour three, they got the file. Yeah, oh, you know, it's God. so funny. It just makes me less, um, I think I just had one math before and that was like super achiever math that yes. like if I just put in, like I'm like life is this bank account and that at some point there's going to be this payoff in 15 years. And then I realized, like, okay, first of all, I might not make it 50 years. I really hope I will. But in the meantime, like, what are the ways in which I can be most, like, what's the gift I can give based on the best work I can do now in the most loving way? And that has really kind of changed my perception on, like, kind of how, what I'm supposed to do. So I definitely have, like, pulled it back a bit. My horizon's a bit tighter, but I actually think it's maybe, like, a bit richer than it was before. Well, one thing that occurs to me, I imagine, you haven't really talked about this, but you know, you're so out there with your own story and you have this podcast, which really people then feel very intimately connected to you. So I imagine that many people come to you who want to share their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. is that tough to be the recipient of so many people going through so many intense and difficult circumstances? Do you find it energizing and uplifting? Do you find it overwhelming? How does that back up on you as sort of a person with whom they want to share? I think maybe both. Like one, the first reaction I have is, oh my gosh, life is so hard for everybody. Like, why is it so Mm. hard for everybody? Like, why is it so hard to have, you know, people who love us and healthcare and like just all these really basic things. And you realize how fragile everyone is. And that makes you just want to be like less grouchy in the checkout line, you know? Yeah. Mm. And then the other reaction is that I wish that there were safer places where people could share those kinds of ongoing realities without feeling like they could only talk to, that they're just more safe people. Because it's not even that every single person has like their one crisis, but they're defined by like their kids having a hard time. Their parents are in a care facility and they're struggling like, we're totally taken apart by our big loves. Yeah. And I, I wish yeah. that there was, I wish there was more sort of cultural permission to be fragile and to be in mm. that liminal space that we all seem to be in where we're not totally sure that it's going to work out, but we really need one another to kind of step in with love. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, let me, let's just take a second. I feel like I have to take mm. that in. Well, one thing that you really are able to do is to access humor and to maybe not like be cracking jokes so much as but to be light and to find a light way of talking about very heavy issues. 
Is that just sort of, you said you kind of are performatively cheerful. Does that come naturally sure. to you? Do you lean into that? Have you really, I mean, how do you think? Because I feel like sometimes people are like, it's that whole, I forget the name of the doctor who was like, laughter is the best medicine. And I'm like, people are sort of like hitting yeah, you over laughter, the head and tell you laugh. You know, <laughs> laughter, just laughter would murder me for sure. <laughs> I would be very concerned if people were giving me more laughter at the hospital. I do, you know, honestly, I think partly it's that the, the illness really hit the sort of surrealness and absurdity level of my life. And so, and also I have this overwhelming desire to feel like myself. And so I don't want to stay mm. on script forever, ah. partly just because it's unbelievably boring. But like, just for example, I had a surgery and I had this, I guess, like tube in my stomach, which I didn't notice. Everything was like a bit of a mess down there. So I wasn't paying that much attention. And a doctor <laughs> came in and was like, I'm here to take out this tube in your stomach. And I was like, wait, there's a tube in my stomach? And he's like, yeah, I'm here to take it out. I was like, whoa, whoa. I think we need to start again with like, Kate, I'm here to take this tube out of your stomach. So every single time I made him reset, I made him leave the room and come back in. And like, oh. it ended up us being unbelievably good friends because we were laughing so hysterically <laughs> how badly the whole thing was going. And I made him pretend to do a magic trick by the end and he wonderfully complied. Oh and it's in moments like that where I felt most myself and also just able to accept the fact that I was like, oh dear God, what are you going to take out of my stomach? In which you really have to give up control really quickly. And so I think humor really helps me get there where I can feel it's like I'm still myself in a situation where I just never imagined that I'd be. Well, and maybe the humor, I'm thinking back on something you wrote about, or maybe you talked about on the podcast, where it allows you to kind of be demanding in a certain way, in the best possible way. Because you said, like, somebody came in, it was like 4 a.m., and, like, the lowest level of doctor comes in and is like, oh, by the way, it's not good, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, now you have to hold my hand if you're going to tell yeah. me that. And yeah, in a yeah. way that's kind of, in the super dark sense, kind of funny. Yeah. But yeah. that struck me to the core. And I bet to that doctor, it was a very striking and memorable moment, which is like, you can't say that yeah. without holding yeah. my hand. Yeah. And, but it's a light way of saying, you just really mishandled this. Let's back it up. Yeah. And, and try this is what I need. Yeah. 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 And this is how you handle a human moment like that. You can't just. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to figure out how to be human, I think, especially when things just get weirder and worse. And uh, if I just find I have less tolerance for pretending in that way and more of a desire mm -hmm. to, like, connect. And it's partly just out of fear, right? Like, there yes. are a lot of... <laughs> Like in the Bible, anytime an angel is like, don't be afraid, it's because something absolutely terrified has just happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I think we have this, we just have all kinds of moments where it's just not true that, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. There usually is. But like, if we can figure out how to be ourselves and to connect, like, and if we can just be holding someone else's hand, yes. it really does get a lot easier. Well, so Kate, we ask every guest who comes on the show, do you have a concrete suggestion for listeners, something they can try at home to be happier, healthier, more productive, or more creative. And I know you've spent mm. so much time thinking about this. What's like a simple thing that you think people could do? Hmm. You know, I think maybe one of the strongest feelings I had when I got sick is that I didn't have anything good left to give. Mm. And so honestly, I would just want every person, especially if they're going through a hard time, to know that they're very best things are also still inside of them. 
and that there Mm. are so many good gifts left to give. And so I would just encourage people to like take a moment and either ask a friend to remind them what they're really good at, but just do a little gift inventory. Like even if they're in the middle of something unbelievably terrible and know that like they're not defined by the stuff that happens to them. And hopefully there's just some minute where they can have a second to feel like they're still a good giver and not just someone who receives. Mm. Well, one thing that's very striking, Kate, that I think is your gift is that so many people who go through difficult situations would love to redeem that experience by Mm -hmm. thinking that they're helping other people. And I think that is something that many, many people want to do out of the greatest love. But it is not a gift that everyone is able to give because it's Mm -hmm. very hard to talk about these things in a way that is accessible to other people. And so I think you are doing it so well, both in your writing and with your podcast. Um, It is really a rare gift. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so grateful for this. This has been so lovely. Thank you, Kate. (laughs) Yes. um, It's so great to talk to you. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come talk to us. You guys are awesome. Seriously. And I love that you're doing this just like bivocationally. (laughs) So many things at one time. Well done. Like nobody does that. Really nobody. Very few people can even do one thing. You guys are doing like five things. And the fact that you're doing it together, I really, I was so touched by that. I think it's just amazing that you're like combining your gifts and then making sure that it's accessible to everybody. So yeah, bless you in this absolutely lovely ministry you have. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Gretch, it's time for demerits and gold stars, and you are up this week with a demerit. Yes, so I have this practice, which I think a lot of people have, Elizabeth, you do it too, where for the first day and the last day of school every year, I take a picture of my daughters holding a sign that says like, first day of seventh grade, you know, whatever, yes. and their their age, and it's fun. And I like the consistency because it's always done the same way. You sort of, you can see the changes and the outfits and all that. So it's really fun. And I've been super conscientious about it. So I have kind of don't break the chain going with that. With Eliza, when she was going back to college, I specifically thought, okay, for the last two years, what I've done is I've taken a picture of her with her like bags packed, kind of like off to college, freshman year, mm. whatever, like in our house, because it's like, you know, whatever. Okay, so she's going back to junior year. I had this thought many times, but then in the flurry of taking her to school, I forgot. And you're like, okay, well, she could just do her own picture and hold up the sign. But it's like one of these things where I reminded her like three times. And the first time she's like, I don't have any paper or pens. I'm like, you're in college. I think you can get a piece of paper and a pen, you know, like. And so now, and I'm just annoyed because it's the kind of thing where until I get this fixed, I have broken the chain. I've broken the consistency Mm -hmm. that I wanted to have. Even the fact that it's a little off could be kind of fun in retrospect. But now it's turned into this like nagging thing because it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let go of this. I'm a dog with a bone until I get it. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, (laughs) she's off to college. Like, I don't want this to dominate. And yet I, I, I really want that picture. So I was just like, why didn't I just stick up a post-it note in the bathroom mirror saying, don't forget to take the picture that morning? Because I knew, okay, we were getting up at, you know, whatever, 7 a.m. to get on the train with like these giant bags. It's obviously the kind of situation where you can forget. Now, obviously- You're going to be distracted. Yes. Obviously, this is a trivial thing, you know? Yes. Yeah. In the context of things to worry about, this is very trivial, acknowledged. But that's just something where I'm like, I learned a lesson there, which is write yourself a note. 
Yes. Write yourself a note. And you are a person who doesn't like to break the chain. So, yes. of course, that's going to bother you. Yes. But fortunately, it didn't occur to me until much later. And so it wasn't like, wait, you know, we were off to college and right. on the train. And it was great. So, yeah, moved her in. All, all good. And Elizabeth, take us up. What's your gold star? My gold star, Gretchen, to go from the deepest of things we've been discussing in this episode to, you know, the frothiest. Yes. My gold star is for the new reboot of Beverly Hills 90210. That is is frothy. (laughs) Yes. It's actually now called BH90210. And everyone probably remembers from the 90s, Beverly Hills 90210, it burst onto the scene and was a huge pop culture phenomenon. And I loved it. And I just love the way that they have rebooted it, which is the characters, they're playing a version of themselves on the show. So on the show, Tori Spelling, for instance, is always worried about money, which she is in real life and has many, many children, which she does in real life and has done lots of reality shows, which she's done in real life. And so they're all sort of overly, um, you know, exaggerated versions of themselves trying to do a reboot. And I just think it turned out great. I absolutely love it. I just, it entertains me. It makes me smile. I think that all of their acting has improved over the years. (laughs) The one sad note is Luke Perry died a few months before this was filming. So he's not on the show and Ah. his presence is definitely missed. And they acknowledge that. But everybody else, including Shannon Doherty, is on the show. So anyway, I just recommend it for anybody who is a fan of the original. I am absolutely enjoying it. Oh, that's terrific. And that is it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Make a concrete offer. Let us know if you try it and if it works for you. Thank you to our amazing guest, Kate Bowler. For more from Kate, listen to her podcast, Everything Happens, and read her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason. Both are terrific. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, our engineer, Bob Tabador, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Remember, if you would like to come to a live show, Happier Hour with Gretchen and Elizabeth, you can get all the information and you can buy tickets at GretchenRubin.com slash events. All the information is there. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. So, Gretch, I tried on like 35 <laughs> pairs of jeans yesterday because looking for jeans for the live shows, um, I think I got one pair that will be good. You know, mom told me that she's like, I will never go jean shopping with Elizabeth again. <laughs> she said she did her time when you were a teenager and she's like, it's just not interesting enough. It's like too many pairs of jeans. I am relentless. <laughs> From the Onward Project.